The New Statesman. Hi, it's producer Adrian here. We're bringing you a special podcast today from our Spotlight team. And the New Statesman podcast team will be back tomorrow. I'm Alona Ferber, editor of the New Statesman Spotlight policy section, and this is a special podcast from the Spotlight team. This episode is the first in a three-part special series, Are We There Yet? How Far Have We Come on Autonomous Vehicles? In this partnered series with Weijo, the smart mobility tech company, we'll explore the future of AVs and the impact they might have on the way we run our cities, roads and the world. In the very near future, your car will use data from your mobile device to help you navigate and stay safe. But vehicles already generate useful data. In this, the first episode of our partnered series with Weijo, we are going to discuss how information generated by vehicles driving around as we speak is being used to prevent accidents and support the move to net zero. Joining me to discuss this are Richard Barlow, founder and chief executive of Weijo, John Stenlake, director of vehicle innovation and mobility at Microsoft, which is a commercial partner of Weijo, We will also hear from Peter Van Manen, the former managing director of McLaren Electronic Systems, which is the company that supplies control and data systems to competitors in the Formula One, NASCAR and IndyCar racing series. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we we dig in into this, we want to start, first of all, Richard, by just telling our listeners, what is this three-part series about? Why, why, are, you, why are we doing this? I started Weijo nearly 10 years ago now, and in, in the first year, I worked with an insurance provider. And my thought process was with insurance providers was that if they had access to data, then they would be able to provide better policies, more cost-effective policies for all drivers. And after a year, it became very apparent that the insurers were very much ingrained with the idea that they could reduce their premium costs for high-risk drivers, but not for all drivers, just a very small percentage. And then at the same point, it became clear that most manufacturers, otherwise known as OEMs, were also making more of their vehicles be available in terms of the data they make available. And it was a massive disconnect. So I realized there was an opportunity there to work with the motor manufacturers and to actually go beyond insurance, but actually use data for good, use use data to, to provide better mobility services. And now today we see data from 90 million journeys every day. We have over 20 million vehicles on platform. We're working with some of the world's largest logistics companies where they're 30% more efficient in terms of delivering parcels. We're working with departments of transport to fundamentally improve safety on roads. We see in near real time uh, collisions on roads, changes of changes congestion, which has never been seen before in such a real time environment. We, and we're providing those outcomes. We're working with smart cities to plan how to ease congestion. We, we show, for example, how you can t- change a road from two lanes to one lane and actually that eases congestion rather than making congestion worse. So we're doing that with live data. And it started with the, this sort of this challenge of, can we provide a better insurance policy for all drivers? And the answer was, with the data at the time, no. But now, actually, 10 years later, that's just one of the, one of, one of the many use cases that we're offering to, to industry. So in, in the special series that we're, we're producing together, we're going to be talking about connected vehicles and real-time data and how, the, as you said, how data can do good. We're going to talk also about EVs, how far have we come in terms of mass EV adoption and what are the policy obstacles to that. And we're also going to look into the future at 
how near we are to mass adoption of autonomous vehicles, of self-driving cars. And now before we dig into our discussion with John Stenlake, we're going to hear from Peter Van Manen a little bit about how he, 30 years ago, started collecting vehicle data in motorsports and how he saw the potential of that for doing good in the wider world. So at McLaren Electronic Systems, we started using high-speed data back in the early 90s. And just to skip to the where we are today, the Formula One racing cars, they have about 150, 250 sensors. They're measuring a lot of data and they're sending about a billion numbers from each car during a two-hour race. And that's been all done through telemetry. 30 years ago, we introduced the idea of high bandwidth, real-time telemetry, because the, the racing cars are quite highly strung. If you want to develop it quickly, you want to be able to monitor what's going on. So it, t- telemetry sort of goes hand in hand to, to running at the edge with some a very highly strung machine. 30 years later, the sort of headlines of the telemetry are not that different, but it's so much more efficient. It's giving much more consistent data across all circuits. And so it, it's just moved tremendously from where it was. Once you are exposed to real-time data in a situation where you're trying to make decisions. There's no going back. And it makes sense because we all think in real time and we all do little thought experiments. So if there's a problem going on with the car, you think, I wonder if it's to do with vibration. I know I'll look at the accelerations and see if that corresponds with the problem. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. I wonder if it's to do with things getting too hot. Okay. I'll look at the temperature. So your thinking process is supported by having access to something which data which can reinforce or disprove your what you have in your mind. Peter also told us about how he applied those same systems outside of motorsports. When as the electronics company we were doing some work in for diesel engines for the aviation industry. And there again the idea of logging data and diagnostic data and making that accessible was an important differentiator because if you could understand the performance of the engines, you could anticipate problems rather than wait for them to happen, which meant that the availability of the aircraft increased hugely. As soon as someone sees real-time data, there's no there's no going back. The danger of exposing people to real-time data is they want it. I guess we all know that. We've all seen it now with the internet. We want things instantly. We want things in front of us. So we just heard from Peter Van Manen about how in motorsports, vehicle data has been used over decades. Richard, that co- concept, that history in motorsports was influential for you. And we, Joe, can you tell us a bit about that? You know, it's interesting when Peter said that, that they receive up to a billion data points from, from each car in, in a race. Actually, we thinking about it now, we get about a whole race worth of all the cars on the in the race in a day. We process near enough 20 billion data points a day now as a platform. N- nearly 10 years ago, I, I saw telemetry in motor vehicles and then and realized that actually that most, most manufacturers had similar thoughts about what their vehicles could do. Fast forward to today, we get suspension movement data, we get powertrain data, we get EV data, we get weather data from certain vehicles, we get something called HMI data, entertainment data from the vehicle. We get a vast amount of data from vehicles. And one of the most compelling use cases, which again, I think is very much in parallel with motorsport, is safety. We've seen with vehicles, batches of vehicles where they've got a parts failure 
And we're seeing this in real time. And that's powerful to be able to inform a motor manufacturer in real time that they've got a batch of new vehicles they've sold where there's a fundamental problem with the vehicle so they can recover the vehicle quicker. So they're not waiting for the dealer to make a warranty claim, but actually recover the vehicle and make it safer is compelling. Another example is we've seen recently is we saw a potential accident on a highway. And sure enough, it actually occurred. And we were able to help and work with the Department of Transport to actually improve the road in the US. Yeah. So the idea of data and what we do, there's the use cases are, are almost infinite. The amount of data from vehicles we have, there's thousands of sensors in any car. We have access to a couple hundred sensors, but the key sensors which are helping us to make roads safe and helping and an infinite number of use cases. Thank you. John, Microsoft works with various companies innovating on this front, and many of our listeners won't be familiar with this line of work at all. Could you explain for them in really simple terms how we gather data from vehicles? How does it work? The vast majority of vehicles today, new vehicles produced are instrumented. In fact, what you find is that as every new model is introduced, as every new car line, they tend to increase the amount of processing power that's available in the vehicle the degree of connectivity, the amount of data that they can send. The, the, the limit on how much data they do send is often you know, a financial one. It's a question of how much network bandwidth they want to pay for in terms of how much data they're going to retrieve per second, per minute, as the car goes about its doing its thing, how much they can do when the car's active, how much they can do when the car's inactive. You have to think about power management from that point of view. But all OEMs have established connected vehicle solutions and those increasingly run on hyperscaler cloud platforms like ours or those of our competitors and you look at the sort of newer oems particularly the new sort of ev focused oems that are coming onto the market they come with the digital platforms that are even more integral they are essentially we call them software defined vehicles but you can think about them as being a data center on wheels they have a lot of processing power in them that's increasing all the time that's increasingly becoming general purpose processing, which means that everything in the car is controlled by software and you can update it in a very sort of continuous process to be able to keep the car up to date, continue to refine what information you're pulling back from the vehicle and change that when you need to because of different circumstances or because there's a problem that you're trying to hunt down. And then in addition to what the OEMs do, people that operate fleets are increasingly also adding their own instrumentation to vehicles using additional dongles that might plug, in, plug into the OBD2 diagnostics port or gateways that they put on the vehicle bus. And they do that because often they need to manage fleets of vehicles from multiple automakers. And to date, there hasn't really been a consistent way of them being able to do that short of adding their own instrumentation. But also they can't always get the data from OEMs. So what are the problems that slowing down the growth of making good use of vehicle data in the broader ecosystem, is that getting hold of the right forms of OEM data isn't always easy for a variety of reasons. And it's one of the useful services that partners like Wejo perform, is being able to be that intermediary that makes it easier for people to be able to get access to that data and actually make sense of that data when you've got access to it. Because the other problem you have is firstly getting hold of the data, but then secondly, being able to make sense of it. Thank you, John. Well, something that Peter mentioned towards the end was one of the things with real-time data is once you have it, it's kind of addictive. You know, you there's no turning back once you have that data to act on. And we've, we're, living, we're living in a mass data age, the pandemic, people became used to their healthcare data sort of being shared with government and uh, local authorities. What would you say to people who, to allay concerns of maybe people who are listening, who are thinking, feeling maybe a little uncomfortable with all that data being collected from vehicles? 
So I think people should always be concerned and become informed and mature about how their data is collected and used. I think that's the only way that people fundamentally get to protect themselves. I'd argue in the case of vehicle data, there's less to fear than in some others. Vehicle data doesn't actually prima facie include uh, PIIs, those personal identifiers that are key to your identity, whether it be your you know, NHS number, your, even your name necessarily, your full name, your address, things like that. So theoretically, it's pretty easy to make anonymous. The problem is that it's not so hard to associate individuals with vehicles via a number of techniques. And then the vehicle data can say quite a lot of you about your activity and behavior. Detailed vehicle data. So when you talk about real-time data, we're talking about detailed data about an individual vehicle, typically. That's usually treated as privacy-sensitive, and it should be. And that's one of the reasons why OEMs typically make that sort of detailed data less available than they probably should for the benefit of society as a whole. And it's a problem, therefore, that needs to get solved. And in my view, the answer is to put people in control of their data, how it is used, how they get compensated for that use. And in years to come, I'm quite convinced this is what society will conclude is the right answer, including establishing the principles that the end user actually owns that data and then licenses it through companies like Wejo to other people, insurance companies, e-charging companies, even the OEM themselves, that actually then want to make use of that data. Sometimes who the end user is can be complex. Is it the driver? Is it the vehicle owner? Is it the fleet operator? Or, or what about passenger? So there's some things that need to get ironed out there. But I think both from a point of view of what people are actively doing in the marketplace with solution patterns, and forthcoming regulation is beginning to move in the right direction. So I think there's hope. Richard. I'm going to tell a very strange story now. <laughs> ten, ten, ten years ago, I was, I was there at the, at the proverbial kitchen table with a notepad. I had a sort of an inkling of an idea of what I wanted to do next. I wanted to build a business around saving drivers their money on their insurance, but be more, not just be focused on high-risk drivers. And I was a fan of Dragon's Den at the time. And I was continuing on my way thinking how, what, what's going to be standout? What's going to be unique about, about my company and where are the sources of data? So I wrote to my mobile phone company and there's something called a subject access request where any company that you have a relationship with is legally obliged to tell you everything they know about you. So I sent my, my, my 10 pounds to the mobile phone company and said, what you know, ask them what they knew about me. And I got a ream of information back, huge ream of information back. And I went through all the data on the, in this information and I worked out that the mobile phone company knew everything about me already. So I could see when I left home, I could see if I'd approached a roundabout at a, a, maybe a slightly higher speed than I should have done. The mobile phone triangulation knew everything. And I thought to myself, this is quite frightening data. And I had no idea that I'd given my mobile phone company the permission to have this sort of level of data on me from purely triangulation. So you've not gone into an app and press consent. You've signed consent somewhere when... I've been with my mobile phone provider 20 years, so 20 years ago, and, and I don't get a bill now. It's all online, so there must be somewhere, something somewhere that's GDPR compliant where I've said that they can keep this triangulation data on all my activity at a very granular basis. And I thought to myself, drivers need to have more control of that. They need to have control of all their journey data. So WeJo comes from WeJourney. And when I started WeJo, when I approached most manufacturers, the first thing I say is, is I say, you do not own the data. You're purely a custodian of the data. The driver needs to be fully informed and they need to make an informed decision about whether they want to share data and how much data they want to share. So the use cases we provide, we will never work with an insurer if the insurer wants to provide a penalty-based policy. That's against the principles of what we do. 
we're very much about being a brand that's that, that will be trusted by society and understand that data won't be cynically sold. It's there to do good, data for good, as we as we refer to. So the drivers control the data. They control absolutely. And you'll see within the infotainment of your car that you can control how much data you want to share. And usually, as John says, it's not personal information. And if we do receive personal information, we have to get two consents from both the insurance provider and the driver as well. Data is not inadvertently shared in anything in, in any form whatsoever. And if we do share data with a third party and we've only got one consent, we would then fuzzy the data and we then only use it for specific use cases like improving smart city infrastructure. I want to take us now to talk a little bit about policymakers and the kind of the obstacles to putting into place all the really beneficial use cases that you outlined early, earlier in this episode, Richard. What are the key obstacles to making use of this kind of data at the moment, whether they're regulatory or legislative? We work with a number of academics and one of the academics we work with, they were saying before we came along with real-time data, it would take them two years to, to do research, whereas they can now replicate the same research in 45 minutes. But... That message needs to be passed on to policymakers now. They need to know that they actually can get much quicker informed decisions about what's going on in the world. I mentioned before about during COVID. Prior to COVID, we saw a certain profile of, of driving behaviors and how people were parking in cities and how that was and how that was and how that, how that was potentially predicating then where utility providers would invest in infrastructure to charge EVs in multi-story car parks. Whereas we showed during COVID that Vehicle usage or vehicle miles dropped by 60%, but within three months, they went back up. But people were fundamentally driving differently. Only real-time data and and new data can give you that sort of new information for policymakers to, to potentially then change decisions that they were about to enact. With things like the Jobs Infrastructure Act in the US, the $7 billion being allocated to EV charging installations for 500,000 charging points, there needs to be the right data so that money isn't wasted. And we can all associate money being wasted in the public sector data can be a big, can, can help hugely making sure that the right decisions are made. John, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Not really. I think Richard said it very well. I just will just briefly add, I mean, I think GDPR legislation was highly useful in starting the ball rolling in terms of starting to get some control over. It's like the story Richard told of all the data that his phone company collected about him, which he didn't know. And as one of the more informed individuals in the industry, if he didn't know, you can bet a lot of other people don't know either. However, it also has some kind of negative impacts in that the concern about privacy sometimes causes people to hoard data rather than actually making it more generally available. I think what's coming, and it's a little bit of an open secret, there are new data policies being at least, shall we say, actively considered by the EU and several of the states in the US, which, which seem to be heading down the pathway of encouraging this individual control that's very much a mantra for Ouija, but making that more broadly the set of principles that people have to act by. I would encourage that form of legislation. It will inevitably come with some penalty costs and some challenges for the industry to have to deal with. But I think anything that moves the ball towards enforcing movement of data under the control of the individual who owns that data and who originated that data is absolutely a good thing. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to Richard and John for joining this discussion. You've been listening to a special podcast series from the New Statesman Spotlight team in partnership with Wejo, the smart mobility technology company. Join us in January for the next episode of this series where we will explore how far we have come on the road to EVs. You can find out more about Wejo on their website. <laughs>